Rebecca Davis with Plan B. She wasn't with us uh, last week, and uh, she is back today talking about Cuban doctors. I, I, I was granted an interview yesterday, Rebecca, with uh, Jürgen Pillay of the Department of Health, but then he couldn't make it um, because he was stuck in a meeting. So I didn't get to ask him how um, a bill of 440 million rand plus for 187, what would be the bill for 217, which is the number that arrived, and how does one justify that cost um, you've been giving a, giving a lot of thought to this yeah it's a difficult one john because i mean there's a, a kind of narrative among some sections of the public and certainly from cuba itself that the deployment of cuban doctors to south africa and to other countries to help fight covid 19 is a kind of act of heroism and sacrifice and altruism and um th- th- sure maybe there is that element to it you know it certainly was an act of heroism and everything else when Cuba sent so many doctors to West Africa in 2014 to fight Ebola. I don't think anyone would would argue that. But the cost of this particular mission, if it is amounting to half a billion rand, really seems hard to justify in a situation where we do have local doctors who cannot get posts, and particularly in a situation where we have South African citizen doctors who receive their training elsewhere in countries which, according to my sources, have better health systems than Cuba and still cannot get registered with the Health Professions Council of South Africa in order to fight COVID-19 as they wish. In this context, to bring in 217 Cuban doctors at a cost of half a billion to fight COVID-19 seems a very odd choice, Don, and that's actually a direct quote from one of the public health experts I spoke to. He said, I simply can't understand why this is happening. It's not even like Cuba has a huge COVID-19 problem at the moment. They don't. Their rates are pretty much the same as ours. So these doctors, unless they've been fighting COVID-19 elsewhere, don't have special expertise when it comes to this particular virus. They also don't know the South African local languages and the culture or anything else, they're going to have, you know, fairly significant challenges as it is. And apparently this has been true of other Cuban doctors in this country too. Some doctors say they've performed well. Others say, actually, they haven't really been able to adapt that well to South Africa, particularly in rural areas. So they haven't made that much of a positive impact. Given all this, why we should pay for half a billion is the question. And that leads me to believe that it may be less about South Africa and more about Cuba. Which, but given the, the, the solidarity links between our government and the ANC before it became the government and the Cuban government and their, their joint stand against American imperialism and the like, that wouldn't be surprising. It wouldn't be surprising, but what would be surprising is the idea that at a time when our resources are so limited that we're willing to pay so much. So for those who aren't aware, it is fairly widely known that Cuba makes a lot of money out of exporting doctors. That is one of their main uh, exports. That is a hugely significant source of revenue for them. They've been sending doctors to 23 countries during COVID-19, sometimes against the wishes of citizens and doctors, as is happening a bit here too. And Cuba needs money because they don't have tourism and they're very poor as it is. There's been a suggestion for instance, that they sent doctors to Italy because Italy is one of their creditors and they already defaulted on their loan payment in October last year. So the idea is that it actually is as much a revenue source sending doctors as it is an act of altruism. And from that perspective, yes, Cuba may have called in a favor with South Africa and said, hey, listen, remember all that support we gave you in apartheid when we sent all those troops to Angola? It's payback time. But the point is, 
if South Africa wanted to support Cuba, why not send aid, you know, rather than the, this kind of charade of importing these, frankly, maybe unnecessary doctors at this extravagant cost? Yeah, I mean, I, I, there is no doubt that there are Cuban doctors who have developed a lot of epidemiological expertise around the world in situations like Ebola. But there were also South African doctors who went and up to West Africa and learned a lot about fighting these kinds of dangerous diseases in helping West African governments deal with the Ebola crisis and, and Great Lakes governments as well. Um, and, and, you know, we, we're not going to be given CVs of these 217, so we're not going to be able to assess whether indeed a significant number of them or even an appreciable number of them offer medical expertise which can't be found within the borders of South Africa. Yeah, and that's another concern because from my research of other countries to whom Cuban doctors have been sent at this time, in particular Andorra, which is a tiny principality in Europe between, what is it, France and Italy, it's that little mountainous place that everyone forgets exists. Anyway, Cuban doctors were sent there, and there were reports in the Andorran local media that a significant amount of them were found not to actually have the training or expertise necessary to perform frontline roles in fighting COVID-19, and they had to be redeployed to less critical roles. I'm not suggesting that is the case with the doctors coming here. I mean, I very much hope that they are at the least extremely highly trained, highly skilled, and very specialized. But again, the question is, as you said, whether we, 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 whether we could not replicate that expertise locally, particularly given the possibility that these Cuban doctors may be being paid $1.57 million per year, which is a big salary by the standards of South African public health. Yeah, or the Cuban government is getting it a lot of it, which is apparently what happens. All right, we will continue trying to get somebody from the Department of Health on and have a conversation with somebody who supposedly supports the importation of these 217. Have female heads of state been consistently better at tackling the pandemic than male leaders? Well, male leaders have also done well. Um, it is believed, some of them, Vietnam, Czech Republic, Greece, Australia. But there is a consistent pattern that female leaders have sort of consistently done well, whereas male leaders have definitely not consistently done well. And we have to look no further than places like the UK and the US for evidence of that. By the way, I don't know if your listeners saw that on the UK Guardian, there was a big article published yesterday inside the, the, the UK's COVID-19 response. It really showed the horrific extent of the bundling in terms of the shift from the herd immunity to suddenly changing tack, etc. But when it comes to female leaders, some of the most successful, certainly, have been as I said, female. So Jacinda Ardern, the New Zealand Prime Minister, Angela Merkel in Germany, the Denmark Prime Minister, Mette Frederiksen, Norway as well. And the, the kind of pattern that we're seeing is that these female leaders locked down fast and early, that they were extremely clear and decisive in their communication. Very empathetic. Um, you know, regular communications to the public, showing their own feelings, being able to kind of relate to, to what people were going through and so forth. It doesn't hurt, of course, that someone like Angela Merkel has a doctorate in chemistry, so she obviously perhaps understands the science a bit more than some of her fellow global leaders. But um, kind, that was a kind of pattern, that they were clear, calm, no, you know, effing around. They just 
said to the public what was needed and did it in an empathetic way. I particularly like the fact that the Norwegian female prime minister held two press conferences only for children, from which adult journalists were banned so that she could discuss with children in particular their fears around the virus. And um, it, it's, it, it suggested that one of the, the commonalities is that women leaders are able to show a greater range of emotions in the same way that women often are permitted to in society as compared to men. So that women are allowed to be um, to display their feelings more frankly, perhaps, whereas from a man it might seem, you know, less less professional, less manly, etc. Certainly, this hasn't always been the case. We saw from leaders like Hillary Clinton, who was frowned upon for never showing her feelings, but she thought obviously there would be a political cost to pay that people would assume she was emotional and fragile, etc. But before everyone gets too excited. Um, the likelihood is also that countries which elect women leaders also have something in common, and that is relative support and trust in the government, greater greater social equality, etc. So there's a kind of social contract that exists in those countries too that obviously helps the female leaders from the get-go. And then dreams, Rebecca, have you been having these terrible nightmares, which supposedly many, many people are having? I haven't, have you? Uh, no. And, no, and and even if I were, I wouldn't tell you because there's nothing more boring than listening to somebody else's dream. Amen. So the good news is that people in general apparently are getting more sleep, but a fair amount of people are reporting sleep disturbances as a result, in particular, of nightmares, disturbing dreams. And there's been a study analysing the kind of things that people are dreaming about, which apparently after kind of moments of social trauma and disruptions tend to be quite consistent. They saw this after 9-11, after the tsunami, etc. And what's coming out most clearly in this pandemic is that people are dreaming about insects, flying insects attacking you, worms invading your body, cockroaches swarming. This seems to be a major sort of psychic manifestation of the pandemic. And I'm interested to hear from your listeners whether they too have been dreaming of swarming insects at this time. Swarming insects. Okay. that's. Uh, <laughs> I'm very glad that I'm not having those dreams. And then uh, finally, before we say thank you and welcome back, how lovely it is to, um, to have you back on the radio again. I got an email from Michael who wants me to talk about the Seapoint Promenade and the chaos that that is going to be with cyclists allowed on it. And you have a suggestion or you, you, you want to think maybe we should follow Sweden's suggestion. So what Sweden has done tonight apparently is Valpurgis night. I do not know quite how to, to pronounce that, even though I am in fact 50% Swedish. I apologize, mum. So in Sweden, in the town of Lund, university town, they are trying to dissuade people from gathering tonight for Valpurgis night, which apparently is traditionally celebrated with big bonfires, people drinking in the parks, etc. But because, you know, those Scandinavians and their insistence on I don't know, democracy and social contracts are not forcing people to do anything. They're not closing the parks or banning them or anything like that. They are simply distributing one ton of chicken manure in the central park. The idea simply being that the smell will be so offensive that nobody will want to gather there. An idea perhaps for J.P. Smith and the Tsars of Cape Town if they want to keep people out of particular areas come tomorrow. Just distribute a whole load of bird excrement. And do you see what uh, the Spanish, uh, what, what one Spanish jurisdiction did? 
I did not. They, um, because they were opening up for children to go outside for the first time in a long time. And so they poured an enormous amount of bleach onto a beach in order to kill any coronavirus germs that might have been lurking there. And in the process, killed off significant breeding colonies of important birds. But at least the kids were safe. That seems like overreach. Let's stick to the iguana, shall we? <laughs> Rebecca Davis, thank you very, very much indeed.